Just uh, confirming that my mobile phone is off, as you know. I'm just giving a little hint there. Uh, my name is Conor Geerty, and uh, it's my huge pleasure to uh, chair this evening's event, which is co-hosted uh, by the Centre for the Study of Human Rights, of which I'm director, and uh, the Forum on Religion. Now, the Centre for the Study of Human Rights has been around for a bit and has uh, quite a number of events, and I recognise just looking around many faces that come to our events. So it's good for me to say that there is a partner organisation that's new and dealing with extraordinarily important innovative work, and that's the Forum, which has been established as an interdisciplinary space for discussion and learning on issues related to faith and religion in contemporary society. LSE has uh, been fairly detached from religion, I would say, in the past. Uh, I don't think that uh, a department of theology will flow out of the enthusiastic response to tonight, which I'm sure is certain to come. But it is aware of the importance of religion, and it's marvellous that it has this forum on religion. And I'm delighted to be also myself uh, on its steering committee. So if any of you are interested, it's on the web under Religion Forum, and there are seminars and further public events. Now, uh, tonight, uh, I'm afraid the Centre for Study of Human Rights normally provides quite an extensive array of wine after the event. I think there is a connection between that and the generally good attendance at <laughs> LSE Centre events. Uh, I don't want you necessarily to leave now. You are sort of trapped. But uh, tonight there is not the usual reception because we're having an alumni dinner and that is a celebration of the MSc in human rights and uh, those of you who are uh, coming to that will be coming to that. And uh, there are other friends from the forum, friends of the centre who will be attending that as well. But I'm afraid there isn't that usual drink. Now, at the end of the evening, I'll be telling you a little bit about our next event, at which there will be copious amounts of alcohol, <laughs> uh, with a mere shambolic sort of indicator of an event as an excuse. So you have to make do with that. Now, uh, this uh, subject of religious faith and human rights, uh, as we've it, uh, indicate with the Forum on Religion, speaks for itself as an important uh, issue. Uh, but uh, we are... Uh, we are privileged to have here uh, the speaker we have, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Rome Williams. He's been the 104th Archbishop of Canterbury uh, since uh, 2002, according to his own website. There's uh, other dates and other websites. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's... Uh, Previous to that, been Bishop uh, of Monmouth and Archbishop of Wales. Uh, so he's got a big pastoral life. But he's also a very substantial academic, having held teaching positions in Cambridge and Oxford, Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity from 1986 to 1992. And his defil was at Oxford, Wadham, and was on the theology of Vladimir Lossky, a leading figure in Russian 20th century religious thought. So we're 
privilege to have here not just a leader of an important church and a pastoral figure of great eminence, but a, an intellectual of, of high caliber. And, uh, and this is what makes it so appropriate for the Center for the Study of Human Rights as well as the Forum on Religion, a person who has been able to engage in public affairs in a way that has stimulated discussion and which has provoked debate and which has added to the understanding of our culture and given a tremendous amount of solidarity, if I may say so speaking personally, to those who feel that the kinds of things he has been saying have needed to have been said and it has taken a courageous as well as an intellectual as well as a pastoral figure to say them. So with those few preliminary words, I'd ask you please to uh, repeat the fulsomeness of your greeting to our guest this evening, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Roman. Connor, thank you very much for that introduction. Thank you all for being here. I'm very much honoured by the invitation to join you this evening, but rather sorry to be the occasion of depriving you of this glass of wine that I hear so much about. <laughs> now, 27 years ago, Alastair McIntyre, in his seminal work on the foundations of moral discourse after virtue, declared that human rights did not exist. I quote, Rights which are alleged to belong to human beings as such and which are cited as a reason for holding that people ought not to be interfered with in their pursuit of life, liberty and happiness are a fiction. There are, he says, no such rights and belief in them is one with belief in witches and in unicorns. The language of rights emerges, McIntyre argues, at a time when people need a fresh moral compass in the wake of the dissolution of much traditional morality. Like the concept of utility, which is another characteristic notion developed in the modern period as a touchstone for moral decision, the idea of rights is meant to act as a trump in moral argument. The trouble is, McIntyre says, that rights and utility don't get along very well together in argument. One is essentially about the, right, the claims of the individual, the other about the priorities of administration. And the result is the familiar modern standoff between the individual and the bureaucratic state. The state is both the guarantor of rights, more clearly than ever with the emergence of the market state, in which the most important reason for recognizing the legitimacy of a state is its ability to maximize your choices, See the work of Philip Bobbitt on this. And the state is also the authority that claims the right to assess and on occasion overrule individual liberties. Hence the tension between the state and civil society, which has been so explosive a theme in 20th century politics. And the lack of mediating concepts to deal with this tension was identified by Hannah Arendt and echoed more recently by Gillian Rose as one of the roots of totalitarianism. But Julian Rose notes also the same problem identified by McIntyre, the way in which the standoff between rights and utility leaves the path open to an exclusively managerial account of political life, 
in which expertise about process is allowed to short-circuit proper discussions of corporate human goals. So McIntyre's point isn't to deny the reality of human rights in the name of some kind of absolutism. Quite the contrary. He's anxious that the language of rights and the language of utility are, as they're typically used in the modern world, no more than assertion. They're just stopgap notions to avoid complete relativism in public morality. And that is one of the undoubted complexities in contemporary discussions of rights. On the one hand, human rights is habitually used as a discussion stopper, as the way in which we speak about aspects of social morality that are not up for negotiation or compromise. Human rights abuses are widely seen as the most damaging weaknesses in a state's claim to be legitimate. And in extreme cases, they may be used as part of an argument for direct intervention by other states. On the other hand, what's often discussed in connection with both the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the specifics of current human rights legislation is in fact a hybrid mass of claims to be decided by the state through its legislative apparatus. It is a quintessentially bureaucratic or managerial business, weighing various supposed entitlements against each other. If we speak without qualification of the right to life, the right to a fair trial, the right to raise a family, and the right to a paid holiday, under exactly the same rubric, it's very hard to see how this language can plausibly be understood as dealing with moral foundations. Fundamental issues blend with reasonable contractual expectations in a confusing way. And the idea of a list of entitlements dropped, as it were, into the cradle of each individual is deeply vulnerable to the charge of arbitrariness. McIntyre's scepticism is well placed. But if we are to salvage something from this, what do we need? Salvaging is important, if only for the reason that if the language of rights is indeed the only generally intelligible way in modern political ethics of decisively challenging the positive authority of the state to do what it pleases, the only way of expressing how the state is itself under law, then this language needs to be as robust as it can be. So in the remarks I'm going to offer this evening, I want to propose two ways in which a particular religious tradition, my own, may offer resources for grounding the discourse. There is now an abundant literature on religion and human rights, and a certain feeling in some quarters that there is a tension between rights and religious belief. It's been a good deal discussed in the context of Muslim critiques of the Universal Declaration, but Christian theologians have also voiced some unease about a scheme of ideas that places claims ahead of duties or even dignity. But I don't actually believe that this supposed tension is as serious as it's made out to be. So long, that is, as there is some recognition that rights have to be more than pure assertion, or as some people would now put it, necessary fictions, which you use to get a maximal degree of social harmony. Roger Roston, a Roman Catholic writer, 
has argued in a very important study of the development of rights language that the idea of irreducible or non-negotiable liberties for human beings has a strong theological basis in medieval thought. And paradoxically, though Ruston doesn't entirely follow this through, paradoxically it's in part the result of Christianity's confused and uneasy relationship with the institution of slavery. As is often pointed out, slavery as such is not condemned in the Bible and is taken for granted with varying degrees of regret as an unavoidable social institution by most, if not all, Christian thinkers of the first millennium and a half of Christian history. However, from the first, the Christian community included both slaves and slave owners. In the New Testament, the letter to the Ephesians touches briefly on their relationship, as does the first letter of St. Peter. The sort of thing that these texts say is that the slave must give service as if freely to the Christian slave owner, not as a response to compulsion, and being willing to serve the harsh master as willingly as the kind one. And the slave owner must remember that he or she and the slave are alike bound in slavery to one and the same divine master. And that last point relates to a passing remark made by St. Paul in his letter to the Romans about refraining from judging another believer because you're not entitled to assess the satisfactoriness of the behavior of someone else's slave. Now, the point is that the slave owner's relationship to the slave is severely complicated by the relationship set up by baptism. The slave is no longer simply the property of the master or mistress, but belongs to the one divine master and is ultimately answerable to him in exactly the same way as is the Christian slave owner. As the Christian community develops and reflection about these issues continues, some implications are tentatively spelled out. In a world in which the slave owner had powers of life and death over the slave, the church determined that it is sinful to kill a slave. Though I'm afraid when you look at the texts that uh, prescribe this, the penitential tariff for killing slaves is not quite what you might expect. But in a context also where the slave owner was assumed to have unlimited sexual access to slaves, sex with a slave is treated on the same basis as any other sexual misdemeanor. And marriage between a slave and a free person is recognized by the church. Now, Stoic writers in the ancient world, like Seneca, had made it a commonplace that the master had no power over the mind of the slave. But no philosopher attempts to limit what ownership of the slave's body might entail. The Christian attempt to think through the implications of slave and slave owner as equal members of the same community inevitably qualified what could be said about absolute ownership and offered minimal but real protection to the body of the slave. So if we go forward to the Middle Ages, it's not surprising that Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, discussing the limits of obedience to earthly masters or sovereigns, says explicitly, and I quote here, 
While a human being is bound to obey another in matters external to the body, in those things that affect the nature of the body, no one is bound to obey another human being but to obey God alone. For instance, in matters to do with the body's sustenance or with the begetting of children. So a slave can't be commanded, for example, to starve to death. Nor can a slave be prohibited from deciding on marriage or celibacy. The principle that's been established is that the human body cannot, in the Christian scheme of things, be regarded as an item of property. It's not just that I have an ownership of my own body that is not transferable, though some moralists, including a few recent Christian writers, have tried to argue something like this, disastrously, I'd say. It's much more that the whole idea of ownership is inappropriate. I may talk about my body in a phrase that parallels my house or my car, but it should be obvious that there's a radical difference. I can't change my body for another. I can't acquire more than one of it. I can't survive the loss of it. And however deeply attached you are to your house or your car, there's a clear difference there. The body, and this is where St. Thomas Aquinas and the tradition associated with him significantly refuses to accept a separation of soul and body as two things that just exist side by side. The body is the organ of the soul's meaning. It's the medium in which the conscious subject communicates and there is no communication without it. So to protect the body, to love the body, is to seek to sustain the means of communication that secure a place within human discourse. And so, a claim to control the body absolutely to the point where you could be commanded to deny your body what is needed for its life, would be a refusal to allow another to communicate, a refusal to allow them to make sense of themselves. The ultimate form of slavery would be a situation in which your body was made to carry the meanings or messages of another subject and never permitted to say in word or gesture what was distinctive for itself as the embodiment of a sense-making consciousness. My own relation to my body is not that of an owner to an object. And to recognize another material thing as a human body is to recognize that it is not reducible in this way to an object among others. In that it is, the body is a means of communication it can't simply be instrumental to another's will or purpose. Very significant that Thomas Aquinas uses the examples he does. The nurture of the body is, for human beings, more than an instinctive business. It requires thought and a measure of liberty. And the sexual involvement or non-involvement of the body is a primary locus for the making of sense. Denial of this liberty is the denial of something absolutely fundamental, which is why sexual abuse is indeed a prime instance of rights being violated, the body becoming an instrument for someone else's meanings, a tool for the construction of another person's sense-making. In this framework, the recognition of the body as a human body 
is the foundation of recognizing the rights of another. And to recognize a body as a human body is to recognize that it is a vehicle of communication. It's not a recondite point. The state of mind in which somebody is not able to grasp that another's body is a site of feeling and so of consciousness and so of communication is something we routinely regard as seriously distorted. Whether we're talking of the difficulties at the extreme end of the autism spectrum or of the plainly psychotic. Our ordinary human interchange simply and straightforwardly demands on understanding, depends upon understanding any apparently human body we encounter as in some sense a potential communicator with me. And when in the past people have sought to justify slavery or other forms of institutionalized dehumanizing, it's been necessary to restrict often expensively and dramatically, their opportunity to communicate and to belittle their ability to do so. The slave hasn't really got anything to say, and so we must, of course, prevent them from saying anything just in case they have something to say. Some of you may know George Steiner's extraordinary short story or novella, The Portage to San Cristobal of A.H., it's a story in which a group of Jewish agents have been given the task of kidnapping an aged Hitler from his South American hideaway. And they are strictly instructed not to allow him to speak to them, because that will force them to see him as a human like themselves. Now, one advantage of putting the issue in these terms is that it takes us away from the more unhelpful aspects of those rights theories that stress the grounding of rights in human dignity, but then associate human dignity with a particular set of capacities. The danger of these is that by trying to identify a list of essential capacities, it becomes possible to identify criteria according to which full claims to human rights may be granted or withheld. And the right of the imperfectly rational person, whether the child or the person with mental disabilities, may be put in question if we stipulate a capacity for reasoned self-consciousness as a condition for acknowledging rights. And of course, to speak of the right of the body as such casts a slightly different light on the sensitive issue of the right of the unborn. The unanswerable question of when embryonic material becomes a person, let alone when it acquires a soul, still assumes a basic dualism about the body and its inhabitant or proprietor, where the way in which we ought to be framing the question is in terms of what counts as bodily continuity and what can be said about the communicative dimension of the organic life of the unborn, how even the fetus requires to be seen and understood as expressing something to us in its character as an individual human organism. But that's a complex set of arguments. And my aim for now is just to establish that by recognizing the human body as a human body, that is, as a system of communication, by no means exclusively rational, let alone verbal, that's fundamental for understanding why we should want to speak of rights at all, of equal liberties that are rooted in the liberty to make sense, that is, to be involved in communication. As I've said, 
It's in one way only to spell out the act of faith that we make every time we engage in human communication at all. Yet behind that routine act, that assumption that when I see you, I expect you to understand something of what I say and you expect to understand something of what I say, however unlikely in certain contexts, behind that routine act lies something else. Given that many societies have in practice assumed that some human bodies are not worth communicating with or receiving communication from. And that's why I think there's some point in excavating the theological insights that have moved us irreversibly in the direction that leads towards universal doctrines of right. Grasping that the body cannot be an item of property is one of the things I've said that is established by the Christian doctrine of communion in Christ and shared obedience to Christ the slave and the slave owner. The doctrine affirms that the body of every other individual is related to its maker and saviour before it's related to any human system of power. And that in turn implies that there is a level of human identity or selfhood that can't be taken over by any other person's will. A level of human identity, both bodily and subjective or interior. And this belongs with the recognition that the body speaks, that it is the way I make myself present to myself and to others. This holds true even for the most inarticulate or those whose communications are hardest to decode. To put it as vividly as I can, those who are not articulate or who I can't easily decode still have faces. Over against those who want to locate human dignity in the distinctive structure of the human self, a position which still skirts the risks of setting conditions for dignity, I want to propose that what is basic here is the character of the body as the vehicle of language. Michael Zuckert, in a careful and interesting essay on human dignity and the basis of justice published last year, makes a strong case for beginning from the character of the self as a mental structure, allowing human beings to understand themselves as agents with an identity that continues through time and a capacity for envisaging future situations as resulting from present decisions. That, he says, is surely what is most irreducibly unique about us, and that, therefore, is what grounds a universal moral code. But I think he weakens his case by speaking of the self, following John Locke, as the proprietor of its experiences. Quote, the relation of the rights bearer to his property is remarkably parallel to his relation to his self. But I want to suggest that the embodied self as a communicator is more than the self-conscious organizer of experience into patterns of continuity through time, past and future. It can survive the absence of this sort of self-awareness without forfeiting its claim to be treated as possessed of equal liberty in the basic sense I defined earlier. Given the much chronicled history of the abuse, psychological, physical and sexual of the mentally challenged, of small children or sufferers from dementia, it is crucial to clarify our grounds for regarding them as protected from being made the carriers of the desires and purposes of others. If we begin from the recognition of them as embodied in the same sense that we are, we have such a clear foundation in a way that I'm not sure we can have, even on so sophisticated a version of capacity theory as Zuckert's.
if I'm right about this, the irreducible core of human rights is the liberty to make sense as a bodily subject. Which means that in thinking about rights, we ought to start with the inviolability of the body itself. The poet and artist David Jones wrote in the early 40s, man is created equal in the sense that all men belong to a form-creating group of creatures and all men have unalienable rights with respect to that equal birthright. And that form-creating character is anchored most simply and primitively in the character of what we mean by the very idea of a body as opposed to an object. Now, let's not be too starry-eyed about this. It's true that while the sort of Christian thinking represented by Thomas Aquinas laid the foundations for this, it still accepted extreme physical punishment, including death for transgressions, and of course it did not understand the necessary freedom to determine the pattern of your sexual life as a charter for everyone to shape their own destinies, irrespective of the church's teaching. The implications of Aquinas' view still allow the state to say that it will limit the bodily freedom of some of its citizens when that freedom threatens the freedom of others. Though centuries on from Aquinas, we have taken on board more fully the need for punishment both to respect the essential physical dignity of the punished and to be capable of rational communication to the punished. The basic concept of right with which Aquinas works itself puts in question capital punishment or humiliating and damaging physical penalties. It is what grounds the modern refusal of legitimacy to torture, degrading or humiliating punishment, or even indefinite detention without charge. Significant markers in the age of Guantanamo or Abu Ghraib, and at least a significant part of the argument about the time limits for detention now being discussed in our own legislature. Likewise, this view allows the church to say that there is a limit on morally acceptable options for sexual life, although we would not now understand this as licensing a restriction by law on the decisions people may make in this area. We are free to make bad or inadequate sense of our bodily lives, and the legal restriction of this beyond the obvious protections of the vulnerable would have to be seen as outside the powers of rulers. If the state legislates against sexual violence and abuse, as it must, it's because of the recognition that this is an area in which the liberty to make sense of or with one's own body is most often put at risk by predatory behaviour on the part of others. So, equal liberty is at root inseparable from the equality of being embodied. Rights belong not to the person who can demonstrate capacity or rationality, but to any organism that you can recognize as a human body at any stage of its organic development. If the body cannot be an item of property, it will always be carrying meanings or messages that are inalienably its own. And this opens up the second area in which aspects of Christian theology offer a foundation for a discourse of universal rights. So far, my emphasis has been upon what you might call the view from within. The body as carrier of the soul's meaning, the body as form to give an intelligible shape 
by the continuing self called into being by God. But the process by which the body realises its communicative nature, by which it becomes concretely and actively a locus of meaning, is a process in which the body receives and digests communication as well. The individual communicates meaningfully when she or he is decoding and responding to the meanings that are present to him or her. The full development of the particular body's freedom to communicate is realised in the process of understanding and managing and responding to the communications that are being received. So the human other is thus essential to my own growth as a communicative being, a bearer of meaningful messages that cannot be silenced. My own liberty not to be silenced, not to have my body reduced to someone else's instrument, is nourished by the equal liberty of the other not to be silenced. And in the framework we've been using, this is identified as the central feature of the community created by the Christian gospel. Slave and owner are not merely bound to a common divine master. They are bound in a relation of mutuality, according to which each becomes the bearer of necessary gifts to the other. The relation of each to the master is such that each is given some unique contribution to the common life, so that no one member of the community is able fully to realise their calling and their possibilities without every other. Not killing or not abusing the slave is for the slave owner the necessary implication of recognising a very countercultural thing in the ancient world, recognising that the slave is going to be his or her benefactor in ways that may never be visible or obvious but are nonetheless vital. So the dignity accorded to the human other is not a recognition that they may be better than they seem, but just a recognition that what they have to say, welcome or unwelcome, intelligible or unintelligible, convergent or divergent, could in certain circumstances be the gift of God. Now, not every human other is a fellow member of the body of Christ in the biblical sense. But the universal command to preach the gospel to all prohibits any conclusion that this or that person is incapable of ever hearing and answering God's invitation, and therefore it mandates an attitude of receptivity towards them. Not silencing the other or forcing their communication into your own agenda is part of remaining open to the communication of God, which may come even through the human other who is most repellent or opaque to your sympathy. The recognition of a dignity that grounds the right to be heard is the recognition also of my own need to receive as fully as I can what's being communicated to me by another being made by God. It compels that stepping back from control or manipulation of the other which we so often seek for our security so as to hear what we cannot generate for ourselves. And it should be clear, incidentally, that this is also an argument that grounds whatever we might want to say about the right of the non-human world to have an integrity that's not wholly at the mercy of human planning. To found human rights on the body's liberty to express its own message 
and the need for all embodied human beings to receive each other's meaningful communication in order for them to be who and what they are, removes from the argument those elements of conditionality which can creep in if we speak too glibly about capacities, whether rational or moral. The American philosopher Nicholas Wolterstorff, in the same journal from which I earlier quoted Zuckert's remarks, notes the way in which some have insisted that the discourse of human rights and dignity expresses simply an explication of what it is to treat humans as humans. But he very reasonably goes on to ask why, in particular circumstances, I should treat this human being as a human being if, for example, I conclude that she or he is a poor or inadequate specimen of humanity. If the appeal to treating humans as humans is not to be purely assertive or tautologous, we need more. Something related to language about the image of God seems called for, says Wolterstorff. But we need also to be aware that this language can't just be mentioned as if it instantly provided a clear rationale for rights as we understand them. And so my purpose in these thoughts has been to suggest precisely what might be involved in doing more than just mentioning these biblical themes in considering human rights. But is this to argue that we just can't talk about human rights intelligibly if we don't have a religious or even a Christian foundation for doing so? Given that there's already more than one essay in grounding human rights in traditions other than Christianity, and I might refer you to the very interesting work of Abdulaziz Sachdina, it may be rash to make excessive claims for Christianity here. But the fact is that the question of foundations for the discourse of non-negotiable rights is not one that lends itself to simple resolution in completely secular terms. So it's not at all odd if diverse ways of framing this question in religious terms flourish so persistently. The uncomfortable truth is that a purely secular account of human rights is always going to be problematic if it attempts to establish the language of rights as a supreme, non-contestable governing concept in ethics. Alistair McIntyre's argument, with which I began, alerts us to the anxiety and the tension that is hidden within the classical Enlightenment discourse of rights, the sense of having to manage the effects of a moral bereavement. And the development of that discourse in the ways we witnessed in the late 20th century doesn't do a great deal to diminish the anxiety or resolve the tension. The question of whether there is anything at all that is quite strictly non-negotiable about human dignity is not academic. It's the question, dusted off recently, for example, whether we might be permitted to re revisit our consensus about torture when faced with the captured terrorist and ticking bomb scenario, beloved of some people who write about political ethics. It's I've said it before, I need to say it again. I think it's very remarkable that what seemed to be an established and unshakable consensus about the inadmissibility of torture has been precisely shaken and questioned in the discourse of the last few years. I don't think we should feel complacent about it. But our instinct seems to be that something has to be secured over against the claims of raison d'etat, the state's powerful reasons, in the name of a human form of life 
beyond choice and convenience. The British philosopher Sabina Lovibond, in her brilliant essay on realism and imagination in ethics, made some pertinent reflections on Wittgenstein's remark that justification comes to an end. That is, there comes a point where we have to stop arguing and accept we've reached a level that's recognized as basic for any kind of human thinking. Justification, producing reasons for doing this rather than that, comes to an end, she argues, I quote, not because we get bored with it, but because rational discourse unfolds within a setting not chosen by ourselves. A setting which she, along with both Wittgenstein and Hegel, associates with the fact of embodiment. When we grasp that our embodied state is the condition of everything else we might want to say about thinking in general and ethics in particular, we have arrived at the point where it no longer makes sense to ask for justification. And to speak of non-negotiable rights is to attempt some explication of this not chosen dimension of our reality. To be able to assess or even prioritize the wildly varied entitlements that are currently called rights means developing some means of seeing how far, in a specific social context, this or that claimed entitlement reflects what is required for participation in the human form of life as such, how far it is inseparable from the imperative to allow the body the liberty to say what it means to say. We may, for instance, feel instinctively that the right to a paid holiday belongs to a different order from the right to a fair trial. And yet, in certain economic conditions, guaranteed freedom for leisure is an intelligible aspect of possessing adequate bodily liberty. The idea of a pattern of embodied interaction in which every body, literally, is equipped to say what it has in it to say, in intelligible exchange, which means more than a chorus of individual self-expressions, this is, for Sabina Lovibond, the heart of an ethic that can seriously claim universality and objectivity, realism. I would only add that while this is an absolutely accurate account of the formal shape of a universal ethic, and thus one that can do justice to the language of inalienable right, it still leaves some unfinished business. I've interpreted the New Testament texts about slavery so as to suggest that the recognition that it's impossible to own a human body is rooted not only in the recognition of how the body works as a communi communicative organism, but in the conviction that the bare fact of embodied reality encodes a gift to be offered by each to all, a primitive communication by the creator. In other words, in the theological perspective I've outlined, the inviolable character of the body is ultimately grounded in the prior relation of each embodied subject to God. And as I've hinted here and developed further elsewhere, this has some application for the rest of the material order as well. Now, political and legal philosophy is unlikely to arrive at complete convergence with theology in any imaginable future even if the mythical theology department appeared in the LSE, I don't think we'd get to this point overnight. But the way in which a theology may propose a frame for political and legal questions is not the less important for that. 
The theological perspective, as I've tried to outline it here, is at least a way of insisting that we shouldn't pretend that the discourse of universal ethics and inalienable right has a firmer foundation than it actually has. If the Enlightenment has left us in some measure bereaved, it's important to accept that and to ask what are the most secure foundations that can still be laid for our universalist aspirations about rights. We should beware of looking for easy refuge in bare assertion, treating human beings as human beings, or brisk functionalism about rights. That is, rights are a necessary fiction to maximize harmony. It's also important to grasp that universalism itself is not a simple self-evident idea, and that there are various ways of conceiving it outside the strict Enlightenment framework. And among those ways of thinking about human universality will be, for the foreseeable future, the various religious modes of imagining universal destiny or equal human dignity. And these, I suggest, need to be engaged with rather than dismissed as irrational or regressive. It may be that the most important service that can be offered by religious commitment, where human rights are concerned, is to prevent any overlooking of the issue of how to establish a non-negotiable foundation for the whole discourse. As in other areas of political or social thinking, theology is one of those elements that continue to pose questions about the legitimacy of what is said and done in society, about the foundations of law itself. The secularist may not have an answer, and may not be convinced either that the religious believer has an answer that can be generally accepted. I hope you may have sensed in this overview that our discussion of social and political ethics would be a good deal poorer if we couldn't acknowledge the force of the question. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ron, for a talk that uh, amply demonstrated those various strands as a Christian, an intellectual, and uh, an engaged citizen. Now, uh, there was a lot there at a lot of different levels, and we can tease out what we heard at the level of our choosing. Some of us might want to pursue some of the academic dimensions. Others might want to see how it plays in concrete Situation. So we, we have quite a bit of time here and we have an opportunity to engage at the level of our choice in what we have heard. And what I'm going to do is ask people uh, if they want to intervene to raise their hand and ask a question or make a comment. But in doing so, I would ask you please to be fairly brief and to uh, preface your remarks, if you feel you can, by introducing yourself and who you are. And we'll take, it's not compulsory, a, a cluster of questions before we go back to Archbishop Rowan. So I, I wonder whether we have anybody who's learned that you put your hand up early and you get in. We have a gentleman here, and you're not, you're not going to say anything yet, sir. And we have this gentleman 
here, and I'm looking downstairs, we have this lady here, and uh, we'll start with these three. So, sir, your hand was up very early, and you can set a tone for concision and, and, and precision. <laughs> Not to put you under any no pressure. pressure. <laughs> Indeed, no. I will try to respond to the, uh, the guidance. Uh, my name is David Flint. I'm a retired management consultant. I'd like to raise a different level of consideration of faith and human rights. Um, it's interesting to consider the contribution of um, theology to the founding of rights, but in most cases, the issues of rights that concern us are the abuse of rights where the rights themselves are not controversial. Um, we agree, I imagine, that people should not be tortured. The problem is uh, that certain organs of certain governments, actually quite a lot of governments, some of them rather large, um, don't in fact respect that. The question I'd raise with you is to what degree the claims of certain religious communities challenge the notion of rights by claiming for themselves exclusive privileges which they wish to deny to others. Um, examples of this will occur to you both within a Christian and a Muslim and indeed many other traditions. And I think that level of reality is an important one to discuss. Thank, thank, you, thank you very much. David, I wonder whether, since you're there, Stuart, this gentleman whose hand is now up again, and he will have the opportunity to put his question. Yeah. Uh, my name is Bishop Shiza. Our question is about human rights. <clears throat> is there a virtual space where human rights is obeyed? And if it's there, where is it? And who is advocating for it? Or do you consider the approach by faith groups to be a little better? Thank you very much uh, for that dauntingly precise question. And we have the lady who already is armed with the microphone. Excellent news. So, away you go. Thank you. Um, my name is Claire Williams um, from the British Institute of International and Comparative Law. Uh, I was intrigued by uh, what you said, Dr. Williams, about the problems secular society might face coming to terms with explaining uh, and grounding human rights, um, and which you seem to imply that religion can help with, um, and I wondered if you could explain how exactly faith can help without resorting to Richard Dawkins' faith trump card. Thank you. Thank, thank you, dear. I'm going to get one gentleman in green up here, and then we're going to go to Archbishop Brown, and then we're going to come for some more. So, uh, Yes, uh, my name is Matthew Engelke. I'm a, a lecturer here at the LSE and serve on the advisory board for the Center for the Study of Human Rights. And I, I wanted to get your um, thoughts on the difference between saying uh, everyone has a right to life and saying thou shalt not kill. You can see that he's a tough advisor, <laughs> Archbishop. I have to put up with this on a regular basis. Uh, when we're ready, shall we, shall we deal with each? Well, I'll have a go, yes. Um, first of all, thank you for very um, challenging and complex questions. I'll take the first, um, which I think is in many ways one of the toughest, because I think it does reflect 
a widespread perception at the moment that there is something about religious discourse that is inimical to human rights because of the language of control that's used, not only internally to religious traditions, but also um, sometimes in the desire to extend that control more widely. That, I take it, is the, the force of the question. I don't think I could deny, I shan't deny, that there are lots of elements in religious discourse that do just that. And I don't think that to appeal, as I've done, to religious traditions, theological traditions, ought to blind me or anybody else to the huge ambivalence of history and the present practice. But let's take the, the sort of issue that's around at the moment in relation to religious communities and rights. I suppose my own position would be that a religious community, a church in my instance, can and should recognize the state's freedom, indeed duty, to allow various options, various claims or entitlements in society, which the church itself may not regard as morally, apart from legally, legitimate. So to take the, you know, the classic instance, um, that the state is free to legislate about abortion seems to me uncomfortably a necessary fact about recognizing the secular state. That a church or another religious community is free to try and persuade a society to change its mind about this is also part of the liberty of the state. And I think it's also reasonable that a religious community should ask the state to respect its right conscientiously to opt out of pressure to perform actions against a religiously informed conscience. Now, getting all those in balance, so to speak, is rather difficult. And when the question of persuasion arises, I think it's very easy for people to assume that the church is claiming the right to control, to make other people's minds up for them when they don't share the same convictions. It was, it was something that came up again, of course, in the assisted dying bill discussion a couple of years ago. Now, what right has the church to tell people, etc.? The answer is, of course, none. The only right is the right to argue and to seek to persuade. Now, I'm not sure that every um, spokesman for a religious position would take precisely the, the view that I've taken. Um, in fact, I, I'm fairly <laughs> sure that, that, that they wouldn't. But as, what, I'm, what I'm trying to articulate is what it means to occupy that rather difficult place where you, you recognize the, like the abstract legal liberties of the state and its citizens to legislate X, Y, or Z, to legislate for abortion, to legislate for assisted dying, to legislate for same-sex um, sexual partnership, and so on. And to say, but the church, or whatever religious community is involved, reserves the right not to have its mind made up for it on these matters by the state. And, to that extent, continues to be a partner in public argument and discussion about it. That's, that's where I stand. Um, and it's a slightly wobbly place to be because it's, it's much simpler to say, well, the state does have 
the right to override or to say that um, somehow a theocratic system where the religious community makes up everyone's mind is, is preferable. But I don't think either of those will do. So that's, that's where I am on that one. It's, it's a question I could, as you might gather, talk about for a lot longer. I'm sorry to have gone on, but I was trying to respond as best I could to what is um, inevitably one of the more searching questions in this area. Um, is there a space where rights are obeyed and honoured, I think was the, the second question. And is that, um, is that the space that religious communities define and occupy? Well, wearing a theological hat, if I'm allowed to in this institution, um, I think I'd say that there is for me a sense in which very, very basically, yes, the church I belong to, is the place where human right, in the broadest possible sense, is most fully expressed and honoured. And then I look around at the realities of offences to human dignity and abuses that occur within the church, and I think, well, whatever we say, we don't realise it very successfully. But that's what we very clearly hold ourselves accountable to. And to that extent, because there is an absolute quality about it in that environment. I would say it's very important that there are religious communities that have absolute convictions about human dignity. And that without that, something absolutely vital would be lost from the overall discourse of society. And that's not unrelated, of course, to grounding rights via faith without the, the trump card, I think was your expression, wasn't it? Saying, well, it's, uh, yes, Professor Dawkins' <laughs> phrase. Um, yes, as if to say, look, you, you lot can't manage without religion. You know you'll come back crawling in the end, <laughs> as it were. And I don't think that's, that's a particularly sensible way of approaching it. But I do constantly come back to a worry that claims about inalienable right are actually quite difficult to ground without, let's say, a doctrine of human nature. You may or may not agree with it, but that is what religious traditions establish. Now, that means that the secularist and the really programmatic and hard-nosed secularist, the Dawkins-esque secularist, does have a job to do in the grounding of rights in ways that don't lead in some of the directions I've deplored of making rights at the end of the day just that little bit conditional on something or other. And so I, I simply put the question, and I think it's important that there is a religious presence there that will go on nagging on this, not saying, well, you know, here's the answer if only you dimwits would see it, because, of course, people's secular convictions are real convictions, and they're not going to change just because I say it'd be so much easier to talk about human rights if you didn't believe what you did. But... I, I feel it's part of my job as a theologian to go on asking awkward questions of the secularist, at least as much as they ask awkward questions of me, <laughs> which is not unknown. Um, and the fourth question, gosh, that, that's a very, um, the right to life and thou shalt not kill, the difference between those. Thou shalt not kill, I think, is, without going into what it, originally means in the context of Exodus or whatever, let's take it simply as it stands. 
Thou shalt not kill, says, I think in a different form, what I've been trying to say in the New Testament language, there is something about the life of another which is not at your disposal. Never pretend that it is. Never act as if the life, the life of another were at your disposal. And so, in that sense, it is, it is a, an imperative to do with your attitude, your actions. Um, the right to life is, if you like, a corollary of that. It's what you might work out on the basis of that. If everyone approaches everyone else with that conviction that the other's life is not at their disposal, well, all right, you can express that as a right to life. But it connects a little bit with Alistair McIntyre's discussion where he says, you know, did, did rights exist before people had the language of a right to life? And, of course, if you believe that there's something objective here, you'd have to say they do, but they exist in other vocabularies. And a universal prohibition against killing is, of course, a vocabulary which expresses the same thing by saying the life of the other is not at my disposal. Thank, thank you very much. Uh, th there was a lady right at the back whose hand is now up again. Yes, correctly up. And the microphone is going to us. I've, this gentleman is called my eye. I'm favoring just downstairs briefly. Uh, we'll take the chap in red. And there's a man waving at me who might know me or wants to ask a question. We might come back to you a bit later on, sir. And then this gentleman here in the center. So we'll take these four. So it's the lady here, the gentleman here, up here for red, and then down here. So, lady, are you ready? I am. Naomi Grin, I'm a writer and filmmaker. Um, for millennia, the Ten Commandments acted as a basis for human rights. In your own religious community, uh, does the UN Declaration of Human Rights enhance or detract from that? Thank you. I think he thought that one he could get in with quickly, but we come back to it. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm used to this filibustering. Uh, now I've floundered enough for the gentleman to have the. My name, shall I get up or not? My right. name is Christopher, You're fine as you are. Christopher Lutitz, and I'm retired from business into exclusively voluntary work, and as such, I'm a trustee of London Citizens, which consists of about 100 communities of different faiths and non faiths, and, and they uh, strongly campaign for human rights in this country. I'm also involved with St. Esselburgers, which is a centre for. Peace and Reconciliation, which you probably know. and uh, visited there a couple of weeks ago. Where, yes, where we um, have many events talking about human rights. I good. highly recommend those too, but my question Excellent. is very brief. My question, uh, good, good. My question is very on. brief. Do you, do you see a human right to gender equality and how that should or is applied in the hierarchy of various, various religious communities. Thank you very much, Christopher. A question that lasted less time than the introduction to the question, which is <laughs> superb and something of a relief to the chair. So thank you very much. Uh, there's a gentleman in resplendent red. Sir. Uh, hello, uh, Dr. Williams. Um, my name's Ewan. I'm a Masters of Law student here at LSE. Um, and I'd just like to say thanks for the talk, and it's really good to listen to you in person rather than hearing what you say filtered through the national media and anecdotes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, my question r relates to the talk as the whole, which I, I found very interesting and very persuasive. Um, and uh, uh, 
and that's uh, from somebody who probably doesn't take the, the, the same views as you on everything. Um, but so I was wondering then, I mean, given that uh, you, you persuaded uh, me on a lot of things and perhaps a lot of people in this audience who will know things about Locke and Aquinas and, and all these people that you've mentioned, doesn't that suggest then that looking for some kind of human rights foundationless um, criteria in, in self-embodiment or, or whatever is the wrong game and actually what it is is persuasion, uh, which you touched on a bit before, that uh, really does the job when you're talking to different groups of people. Thank you very much, Ewan. And the final one in this set down here. Thanks, yeah. Um, Alistair Cochran, I teach in the Centre for the Study of Human Rights here. Um, I was really interested in your new theory for founding human rights, this idea of a communicative human body. Um, but I think it might fall into the same traps that traditional foundations fall into, um, such as those that base human rights on rational autonomy or suffering. If it's communication that matters, well, animals can communicate, lots of humans can't. If it's the human body that matters, the problem of the embryo, the, the human embryo who have human bodies that you mentioned yourself, and of course corpses, they have human bodies, um, but we don't usually assign them human rights. You mean, these murky questions, you can avoid as the Archbishop of Canterbury, can't you? You mean, why not just found human rights on the, the soul of all human beings, the spark of divinity in all human beings? Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll remember to do that in future. <laughs> He's a very good teacher, as you can see. Try <laughs> take this. Thank you once again for um, four very uh, stretching questions. Ten Commandments, does the Universal Declaration detract or enhance? Broadly, I would say it enhances, um, in the sense that I feel... The, the moral energy of the Universal Declaration is something that is both consonant with and a kind of development of what I read in the Ten Commandments. Back to um, my comment earlier that you know, thou shalt not kill is you do not have the life of another at your disposal. And you could gloss other of the commandments in that light. The Universal Declaration spells that out, I'd say. So I don't feel there's, there's a tension or a... Um, a conflict involved there. Religious people will sometimes say, and maybe that was part of the background of the earlier question, will sometimes say there's a difference between a religious language which fundamentally keeps coming back to issues of obligation before right, and the language of right where you begin with claims, and the other, other people are the ones who have the duties. No. I don't think that's entirely fair. I think that it's a chicken and egg question and that's why I, you know, I wouldn't want to go down the route of saying oh religion is all about obligation and duty and not about right because insofar as right depends on that um, fundamental dignity which our action must recognize then there's no way of talking about obligation without bringing in right and so it goes on so I don't, I don't worry too much about collision there. I think on the whole it's, it's a good footnote to the Ten Commandments or some of them. Now, human rights to gender equality. What can you have in mind? <laughs> I ask myself. <laughs> my own position and my understanding of where the church has been on it. 
My own position is that from the beginnings of my own faith tradition in the New Testament, the equality of the sexes has been axiomatic. It hasn't always been noticed that it's axiomatic, partly because people have imported into their reading of the Bible quite a lot of um, gender stereotypes from philosophy, culture, all the rest of it. But I think it is basic in the New Testament, which I read daily, that the relationship of man and woman to their maker and saviour is exactly the same. And that is part of what persuaded me some, ooh, I suppose some 30 plus years ago, to change my mind about the rightness of ordaining women as priests. I felt I could no longer sustain my um, objection as a rather sort of old-fashioned high churchman to the ordination of women because I couldn't see any other, any other route out of the New Testament except one that finally led you to say that if women and men have the same relationship to God through Jesus Christ, then you know, there are implications for how the ministry works. Those who disagree with me in the church would say the hierarchy of the church is not about an equality of right or you know, an inequality of right. It is a functional ordering of the life of the church in which certain jobs are allocated to certain people and part of, part of that is gender difference, which is part of the human world and therefore part of what God works with. And there, there is a symbolism around that which people argue. I, I'm not persuaded by that, but I recognize that it is still a view held by the overwhelming majority of Christians throughout the world. They're not the majority within my own church. So I'm, I'm clear about the route out of my foundational documents towards a gender equality which includes um, the ordination of women to religious office. I, I would be very cautious, though, about simply assuming that those who think otherwise have a different attitude to rights. Some of those I know who take a different view to mine about the ordination of women would say very, very passionately they have exactly the same commitments about rights, but they don't think that this is an area where that discourse applies because it's not about privileges and freedoms, it's about function. So I, you know, that's where I think um, the argument goes. Um, looking for foundations, is it less important than persuasion? Um, I'm not quite sure where I'd go with persuasion if I didn't at some point feel I, I was able to appeal to a metaphysical or religious vision. You know, I don't want to, to find myself stuck in a persuasive mode which ends up saying, look, really, I, I really, really do feel this. And isn't it obvious? <laughs> um, which is what some people's idea of persuasion does come to these days. I want to go a little stage further and say, well, what might give us grounds for thinking that this is one of those things on which we just bang our noses in the human world? Where, you know, there is, in Wittgenstein's terms, there's an end to justification. So I wouldn't oppose persuasion to the search for foundations. I would see some kind of talk about foundations as, as inevitably coming into that, that task. And otherwise... Well, yes, having said that, let me just open and close a bracket. Um, 
It is true, of course, that most people come to convictions about human rights, real, the deep convictions about human rights, not by argument primarily, but by a sense of something outraged. Do you not think so? That the, the, the real edge of the work of most activists in this area, and most of those people who have fought for basic rights and fought about torture, is something to do with the feeling that we're you're up against torture, against sexual abuse, against violation of various kinds, against systematic oppression. It's the sense of outrage. It's the sense of anger. And that can be kindled by direct experience of the abuse of human rights. It can be kindled by the best kind of imaginative work that presents to us the effect of the abuse of rights. So to that extent, I would say, as persuasion goes a long way without argument about foundations, but I want to take it that stage further because I don't think you can finally keep the discourse, the argument going without that. And the final question, does what I say fall into the same trap about conditionality? Well, I, I could sort of see the question coming in a way that there is, there is a grey area what I was trying to say, I think, was that there is something about the living body which simply because it works through face, expression, gesture, is irreducibly communicative and applies even to those cases where we see very little evidence. The, does a dead body have rights? Well, in a funny sort of way, we treat it as if it did. And that seems to me a, a curious fact about our, our moral world. Um, when people do um, their excavations of prehistoric humanity, they note that quite a long way back, it seems to be taken for granted that what you do with people's bodies is not uniformly to eat them, or to um, build your garden wall with them, but to bury them frequently with um, drinking beakers by their heads and red ochre smeared over their foreheads, something like that. Now, I suspect there still is something in our attitude to the human corpse which retains elements of that. A dignity, perhaps, is the word you have to reach for there, acknowledged in even the dead body, precisely because it still, bizarrely, communicates something, even if it's only in terms of memory. So I wouldn't give up too quickly on the communication. Thank you very much, Mr. Ron. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to... I've got, the gentleman is now, yes, of my encouragement, putting his hand up, but not, not to speak yet. And the lady just there, and then we'll take uh, further. So maybe we'll kick off with the lady just here. And we're trying to get this round in against the pressure of time, so can we be very precise, and I'll see after three whether we have time to go to a third or fourth. Uh, Angela Franklin, you used some quotations from the New Testament uh, and then told us about Anselm and his interpretation or new thinking. That was a 1,000 years after the text, and now we're another 700 years. Um, do you think that from, that theologically or from for instance, the church, we can have some thinking and uh, uh, decisions on human rights that are not necessarily based on text. And if so, 
Or if not, then do all religions need to somehow or other find within their foundational documents, as you use the phrase, um, some way of coming to today's human rights? People have always had the same documents and, as you pointed out, had very different views on, for instance, how whether wives can be beaten by their husbands or how slaves um, could be treated or even owned, which we now say they definitely can't. And, of course, the foundational documents that you say you read 30 years ago and persuaded you about gender equality, well, the same people who still think you're wrong have been reading exactly the same ones, presumably, just as carefully. Right. Th thank, thank you very much, Angela. Uh, sir, uh, yeah. have you got a microphone? Yeah. Uh, no, oh, no, sorry, it's not me. I'm afraid we've now got a miscommunication. I'm really sorry. No, it's not. Sorry, this gentleman here. Thank you very much. I have a burning question for and Dr. And your name William. is? I'm Oliver. I'm from Burma, and I have a, a question. I... Um, as I understood from uh, Dr. Williams' uh, speech, that the constructing human rights based on the communicative body, if that's, if that's the way we, we see human rights, I like to reflect this in my own context because the, the body can be the body of the slaves, the body of the public, the body of Christ, the church. And when there's a, the state and the body of the public or the church have to receive communication and respond to each other. And in my context, it's like the state is communicating with terror, humiliation. And whereas the body of the public and the body of Christ is responding with fear. And I like to see how this individual... Oliver, Oliver, just moving to a question, I think, because yes, I'm very the, conscious the question of is how external uh, body uh, organization can intervene. Because I, I haven't heard any uh, sort of uh, external organization, uh, a religious organization, such as uh, work on some churches uh, or the, uh, the union of uh, uh, churches in group Britain uh, say anything about such difficult situation. Thank, thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you. And uh, because he nearly got speaking, we'll take him. And but Dave, first, Father David, yeah, and then we've got Archbishop Lord. I think. Uh, Dave, David Peebles, uh, the Anglican chaplain here at the LSE, hoping to uh, start a theology department. At some point. <laughs> 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 is, it, is, it, is it not slightly a bit of an irony, a paradox that? What you're saying is trying to establish um, a language of human rights based on being embodied and bodiless, when perhaps religion in general and perhaps even Christianity in particular has such a, an ambiguous, if not miserable, attitude to the body. Thank you. And uh, uh, chap at the back. Yeah. Um, Last question. I'm Roman Gray, my PhD student here. I just want to take you back to what you call your wobbly position in relation to the right of the churches to opt out of the enforcement of ethical decisions which the secular state takes, which the church disagrees with. Now, you've said that secular convictions are entitled to equal respect. I don't think that you're making a libertarian case against all anti-discrimination laws, which is what uh, a broad conscience-based exception to such laws would entail. And how you then square a specifically religious, conscientious right to object out to 
arbitrage research laws with equal respect for non-religious perspectives. Thank you. I think we might have one more because we have enough time. The lady at the back who is now preparing by taking off her jacket while the <laughs> microphone hurdles in her direction. And very briefly in saying who you are. Natalie Hanneman from The Guardian. It feels like um, you're a bit sitting on the fence when it comes to issues of gender and sexuality and I wondered what you thought about the government's proposal to extend its equalities duty to include a, a public sector duty to promote um, religion and belief and the um, concerns from the women's voluntary sector that that will clash with the duty to promote gender equality. Thank you very, very much, Natalie. There's uh, quite a lot going on. Yeah, and uh, we've got five. We've now broken the record for the number of questions, so congratulations, everybody. <laughs> Thirteen. And I think we're okay. ready. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually doing knots and crosses with himself. It's just <laughs> well, ready as I'll ever be. Um, <laughs> could we have some thinking from the church not based on texts? I, I take the point that what I did was to give an extremely condensed reading of one particular way in which um, my tradition has if not thought about rights exactly, set moving um, a set of ideas that finally leads to the establishment of something like a doctrine of human rights. Now, I don't think I can do the argument about human rights without those texts. But of course, what, as I think the questioner rightly observed, what that implies is that there is um, an instability in the way we read texts, and this is a point that came up um, at other points, of course, that there is um, there are shifts in how those texts are read across the centuries. And there is no simple means for the church to say what is a legitimate development and what isn't. It takes time. But that means that the continuing wrestling with the text in every religious tradition is part of how you engage with the social challenges of the moment. The image I've often used here is that in Christianity and in other traditions, there's a sense in which things like gender equality are like a long fuse lit by certain words or ideas that then snakes outside the territory where it started and explodes in the face of the church centuries later, very often, um, as if it then comes as a stranger, an enemy. And religious communities, I think, ought to be very conscious of that dynamic and how, that, you know, how one can misunderstand what is in fact part of one's own legacy. So, I, hmm, without giving any sort of decisive tombstone answer to that, I feel it's really about how religious traditions have to be acutely self-critical about the way they're reading their foundational texts and not to relax too quickly about that, to go on letting themselves be questioned by the texts they're reading and questioning what they think are the obvious readings. And that's, that's a process which actually does go on quite a lot in most religious communities, even if people don't notice that it does. Sorry, a lot more I'd like to say about that, but I... 
I th yeah, let me just add, though, um, one thing, which is that texts do come alive in extraordinary ways. We've been celebrating the 200th anniversary of the abolition of slavery. And it was a time when texts that people had been reading for 1,500 years suddenly sounded different. And they sounded challenging and worrying for people who beforehand had not thought about them. Why was that? A whole range of things. Some of it was precisely the, the sort of imaginative thing. People were shocked. They were angry because they were suddenly confronted with what those texts had come to mean in practice and couldn't square that with what was going on. Some of it was a shift in sensibility, very generally, very imperceptibly. But the texts came alive, as they did in the 1960s in the Civil Rights Movement in the States. And the mysterious thing, I think, for any religious believer is to, to understand just why they come alive in those ways at that point, those points. But they do. A question about um, when the state's communication is one of terror. What, what do external bodies do? And the particular context in, out of which that question comes is a very specially serious one, I know. What can be done? During the during periods when a country, whether it's Myanmar, Zimbabwe, South Africa, is going through a period of intense inner repression and cruelty and denial of rights, how do people outside respond? My instinct in all those cases has been to try and take a cue from the people who are actually there. What do they think is going to be constructive in terms of a response? Sometimes, and this is a message that came out loud and clear in the apartheid days in South Africa, sometimes people struggling within say, give it all you've got. Tell everyone about our plight. And, you know, if we have to pay the consequence, well, then we have to do that. Sometimes, and this has been very much the case in the last few years in Zimbabwe, people on the ground have said, hang on, um, we don't quite know what we want yet. We need your solidarity, we need your sympathy. But don't make too many noises too quickly, otherwise we will all be in greater difficulty. And I remember precisely that conversation with one of our bishops in Zimbabwe a few years ago, and the moment at which we were talking about this earlier this evening, the moment at which we had an email from that particular bishop saying, effectively, go for it. Now's the time to say something. The case in Burma has been a bit more complicated in regard to our own church there, a vulnerable minority, which has had a very difficult time recently. And I've found it extremely hard to craft a response myself from outside because of the mixed messages I get. That's just really... A, well, I suppose it's answering really in terms of, of communication you know, and what people within the situation communicate and what they need communicated to them. And I'm wary of any quick generalities about that. That's just a bit of context. Um, briefly, sorry, we're running a bit short of time. Um, if I heard correctly, the question about opting out was something to do with how you distinguish religious grounds for opting out from a general yet libertarian 
so why should we be constrained to do anything? I think that's one of those cases where religious bodies have a lot of arguing to do because the presumption of the state, very naturally, is the people who want to opt out are people who, who want to make difficulties or who want to, want to subvert the moral colouring of where legislation is moving. And so you, you have to make the case very, very carefully. And I think it's, you know, it's sort of nuclear button issue. It's, it's, a, very, it's a long long stop sort of question. The moments when religious bodies say we cannot, we do not believe we should be forced to do this. The more you talk about that, the more you cheapen the currency. I think it has to be something argued very, very carefully. And argued in terms of, and this leads us to the last question, I think, argued in terms of the proper plurality that a healthy society should be encouraging. If there are people in a society who are worried, let's say, about um, assisted dying or abortion, is it possible for the state to feel, well, the grounds on which they're worrying are grounds which the state ought to understand as part of its whole moral perspective? They're, they're to do not with matters of control, not with matters of systemic injustice, but with issues around respect for life, which, even if you may disagree with the conclusions, are the right kind of places to start. That's, the kind of that's what you've got to persuade the state of, I think, and the, the general public and the guardian or whoever else. <laughs> because, of course, there is often a tension in the way that you've described. Um, and the duties of allowing for religious liberty and respect for diverse conviction and the duty of promoting what... Um, a democratic society broadly regards as desirable. There are going to be conflicts there. And particularly in the gender equality area. But as uh, I remarked in, in another lecture some months ago, which perhaps I'd better not revisit in too much detail, <laughs> I think it's extremely important that whatever right and respect is granted to the autonomy or integrity of a religious community, there should be no question at all of any community having the liberty to deny its members those liberties that the law of the state provides for them. And I think that's, you know, that's axiomatic. So somebody may consent to following certain, the certain internal rules of the community and that's part of the consensual nature of a religious body. But that body cannot say simply, well, in that case, you have no access outside this community to redress for abuse or injustice. So that, that there will be tensions. But I think because the state has the duty of conserving everyone's equal communicative liberty in the terms I spoke of, then no amount of respect for any one community can simply cancel that duty of the state, I think. Well, uh, I think uh, first thing we could do is uh, thank you all, actually. I'm sure the Archbishop will, will join me I mean, I'm, I'm used to you. I, I'm proud of you. I know how good you are. But that was a fantastic, 
that was a fantastic array of questions covering exactly what makes LSE a great place for people to come. Intellectual, academic engagement, and passionate political and policy engagement informed by a human rights perspective. But, I mean, it's achieved by Archbishop Rome, which I'll stimulate by him, which I'll come back to in a moment. Uh, Just to remind you, uh, so well done for for making this such a successful evening, all of you as well as Archbishop Rome. But just to remind you, those of you who are coming to our alumni dinner and guests, you don't have to have done the MSc, there are guests coming as well. You should have a little ticket, I'm afraid, ticketed thing, and that's upstairs. Uh, For those of the fifth floor, uh, for those of you who are uh, not able to come to that, uh, the event I referred to earlier is on the 15th of May. It's very opposite on one of those last points. It's called Documenting Disappearance, Algeria, State Terrorism, and the Photographic Image. And one thing we always try and do here is try and get past the word into the vision. And we have a a partnership with Autograph, ABP, some speakers on on Algeria and, and trying to get across some of the photographic ways of communicating some of this. So really, if you can come at all, it's Thursday the 15th of May. That's the last one from the LSE's Centre for the Study of Human Rights. Keep an eye as well on the Forum on Religion website, which I gave earlier. Uh, There's a lot of events and engagement there as well, and we're very grateful to them for having co-hosted with us here this evening. Now, uh, I have only really one last thing to say, which gives me a tremendous pleasure to have this kind of honour of being able to stand here and represent you all in being able now to thank Archbishop Rome Williams for what was uh, not only, if I may say so, a remarkable talk, which I briefly suggested it was at its end, but for the really tremendous way in which he, he, he dealt with all of the questions, uh, combining uh, a clear faith base of which he is utterly proud with an intellectual ability which uh, is, uh, uh, is, is dramatically impressive even in a world well used to intellectual ability, but informed throughout, I have to say, this is my abiding feeling about this, a tremendous personal honesty as well and an engagement right across the board which flows from the heart. And so I think we've been privileged to have, in the words of one of our questioners, uh, missed out the medium and gone straight to the person and heard directly from him both in the talk and in the Q&A afterwards. And I really hope that you will join me now in formally acknowledging that in the traditional way. Thank you very much. <laughs>